0: Kabbalah, and the psychology of the soul, taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Is our soul part of God? I mean, one in the same? Like you say, his speech never leaves him. Is our soul in that category? Our soul is, is created by God. But the truth is, not only our soul, everything that's created by God truly never really left God. Is really all united. Everything is truly united in the absolute unity of God. From God's point of view, nothing changed. Like we discussed the other week. It's like when Einstein is teaching his students. And Einstein has to come up with uh, analogies and examples and illustrations to be able to communicate his brilliance to simple students who are not on his level. Now Einstein has to struggle to come up with these simple analogies that could convey and communicate his ideas. He has to come up with language that his students could relate to. If he's going to share his dazzling brilliance, he will just destroy them, it'll just overwhelm them. They won't be able to begin to grasp what he's talking about. So in order for them to comprehend, to get some idea, some appreciation of what he's trying to communicate, he has, must communicate in very simple language. Now, the students, what do they perceive? What do they hear? They hear the story, the analogy, the illustration, the simile. They don't fully grasp the moral of the story, what's inside the story. The original dazzling concept, the way it exists in Einstein's mind. But it's it's like a one-way mirror. The concealment only works one way. We can't see, to us the story and the illustration conceals and covers up on what's inside. But from God's point of view, there is no cover-up. For Einstein, he sees within the parable, within the story, the silly story of the fox and the hens and the simple story that he's trying to explain to his little children. He sees the original, brilliant, dazzling insight that he has. There's no cover-up. Why? Because where did these analogies come from? From within Einstein. They come from within himself. You can't hide on yourself, you can't cover up on yourself, so therefore, there's no cover-up. He sees in these very limited analogies, he sees the entire concept in all its dazzling brilliance. So too, this entire world is like a one-way mirror. For us, it's a concealment. For us, we can't see God. We see the world. The world is fragmented. the world is independent. We see the world feels to be disconnected and alienated and distanced from God. It doesn't feel godly to us. You walk down Park Avenue, you don't sense godliness. It's not palpable. You sense ego, money, power, fame, but very precious little of godliness. But it's a one way mirror. From God's point of view, from God's perspective, nothing changed. The same infinite light. God sees within this world. Everything in this world is just a parable, just a simile, a parable to the infinite. So God sees within this world, He sees the infinite. There is no darkness, there's no hiding, there's no concealment, there's no cover. That's from God's point of view. From our point of view, to us, the effect of God's speech is that the speech is a cover, is a distancing, is an alienation, is, has a life of its own.: We know the multiplicity of beings. there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of species, and, and each species itself has such variety and almost infinite variety. Uh, all of this is a result of the many different contractions, the words and letters with which God creates the world. Every word, every letter, and the different combination of the letters, as we learn in the Shari Yehud, is every letter shows in a different uh, channeling of a different energy and then the different combinations of the letters, like mixing chemicals, different, different mixtures, you come up with different results. So too, you have, you have such a variety of being and existence this all comes from the contractions, from God's many words and letters and, and, and uh, multiple combinations of them. But how do, you, how do we come to a world of atheism? How do we arrive at a world of atheism that totally denies God? A, of, a world of idolatry that totally denies God? Or atheism, totally denies the existence of God? That God is so concealed, God conceals Himself so much, That he's able to create a reality that doesn't even acknowledge that there is a source. Which is really the ultimate creative act of God. Only God is the ultimate proof that there's a God. Only God can create a world that denies that there's even a source. You see a book, you know know, there's an author. You see a business, you know there's someone who built up that business. You see a country, you know there's a founder. You see a painting, you know that there's an artist. But to deny, to look at this world, this infinitely complex world, to have students in universities study the infinite complex body, and yet to deny that there's a God, where God is not even part of the equation, not even part of the vocabulary, I'm not even denying Him, He simply doesn't exist. All that exists is me, myself, and I. This is astonishing. This is inexplicable. It's illogical. It makes no sense. How can an intelligent person... If someone told you that Shakespeare was written by a, a monkey of a typewriter, you'd be insulted. So how can an intelligent person look at this world, which is infinitely more complex than Shakespeare, If someone told you that some construction manager put together all the material that went into the Empire State Building, and he brought it all together and then there was a big explosion and before you knew it, it all came together, it was perfect. You had a building with elevators and with lights and with switches. It all just came together. I mean, it, it, it's insulting. And that's the Empire State. The human body is a billion times more complex than the Empire State. And to believe that all of this just happened—it was a big bang it just happened, it just got together—all, I mean, it's—it's—it's it's insulting to the intelligence of a five-year-old child. So how could anyone who who dignify such nonsense? How could anyone who has any self-respect, who prizes and treasures his mind and his intellectual capacities, and yet this is the accepted wisdom today? As a matter of fact, anyone who takes God seriously is is. Some old fashioned uh, is, is ridiculed. Get with the times. What God? When God? I'm a self made man. God doesn't, it's not even part of the equation. This is the ultimate astonishment. This is the ultimate proof that there's a God. Only God can create such a world. <laughs> a world which is so severed, so disconnected, that even while God is creating you, this very moment that God is creating you, with His words and His speech, which are completely unified within God and never even left God. So the truth is that you absolutely, while you're denying God, while you're in a state of atheism, while you're behaving as if God doesn't exist, you are completely unified within God. And yet, on a conscious level, you don't acknowledge God. You don't even deny Him. He simply is not part of the equation. Only God has the ability to create something like that. That's the tzimtzum, the ultimate tzimtzum. The intensity of the tzimtzum, the qualitative tzimtzum, where God is so concealed that while He's creating you, each and every moment, you can't exist a moment with that. And you're nothing other than, than His divine energy. And this divine energy is totally unified within God Himself. And yet, you feel totally egotistical, totally coarse, egotistical, independent, totally disconnected. There is no source. There's no God, there's no rhyme, there's no reason. No justification, I don't even need a reason why I'm here. There's no meaning, there's no purpose to life. Just live and enjoy life, enjoy for the moment, live for the moment. Nothing matters, there's no past, there's no future. Just enjoy the moment and that's all that matters. This is, it's astonishing. It's mind-boggling. It's inexplicable, it makes no sense. But only God has the power to create such an entity. This is the symptom of God. God's ability to totally hide, to play hide and seek. He creates us, and yet He plays. He plays. He plays with us. It's called the game of hide and seek. You know the children's game, hide and seek. It's like the story with the uh, Rabbi Dov Ber had one child, one son, the Malach. And one day he was sitting in the study, and Rabbi, Rabbi Avram, the angel, it's called Rabbi Avram, the Malach, he was so spiritual, he comes running into the study in tears. So his father sits him on his lap. He says, my son, why are you crying? He says, I was playing with my friend the game of hide-and-seek. And I hid so well that no one found me. So his father says, well, isn't that the whole point of the game? So the son says, yes. But they stopped looking for me. And he burst out crying. <laughs> but Rabbi, don't this. He started crying. He says, this is what my master and teacher, the founder of the Hasidic movement, Rabbi Saul bar Said, he explained, it says in the verse, V'anoichi hastir, Aster Hashem says, I will hide, I will hide my face on that day. That exile is called, Hashem is hiding his face. Hashem to question, why does the Torah say twice, hastir, Aster? He says, because the exile is one thing when God hides. But you know that he's hiding. And you know that it's a game of hiding. And you're looking, and you're seeking, and you're searching. And then he sends out hints, because he wants you to find them. It's just a game. He wants you to be found. He wants to be found, but he wants you to find them. He wants you to prove your wisdom, to prove how wise you are. Don't take things at face value, that he, that he is hiding because he doesn't love you anymore. As the goyim have been taunting the Jews, oh, God has unchosen you. He kicked you out of Israel, destroyed your temple. Don't you get the hint? He doesn't love you anymore. But no, that a Jew is wise enough not to take things at face value, not to take the exile at face value. No, the God is hiding because he wants us, He's playing hide and seek with us. He wants us to look for Him. He wants us to seek Him. And the moment we seek Him out, He'll come out of hiding and we'll be reunited and with a deeper love than ever before and He'll rebuild the temple and He's going to bring Mashiach. But that's one level of hiding. But then there's a deeper level of hiding. With the fact that He's hiding is also hidden. You don't even know that He's hiding? You stop looking. You stop yearning. You don't feel unsettled. You feel comfortable, complacent, jaded. He says, That's when the father starts crying. When the son is so foolish that he doesn't even realize that the hiding is, when hiding. the fact that he's hidden is even hidden, and he stops looking for godliness, and stops talking about Mashiach, and stops thinking about the redemption, and stops yearning for redemption, and takes the status quo at face value that this is the best that it gets. And, we, and becomes comfortable in the darkness. That's the deepest the deepest level of hiding. So, Hashem is playing hide and seek with us. And He created a world where He's so hidden. It's such a cover-up. God is so covered up. But He wants us to search for Him. So at the same time, simultaneously, at the same time that He's creating us and sustaining us, and we're nothing other than the divine energy. And this divine energy is absolutely unified within the absolute unity of God. And nothing changed. God permeates and God is here just like He was here alone before He created the world. The truth is nothing changed. God is alone after He created them. And at the same time, God is so hidden that they deny that there's even a source, that there's even a creator. God is not, simply not part of the language. This is the ultimate, ultimate miracle, a creative act of God. It's the ultimate proof that there's a God it's much more impressive when God hides it's much more impressive than when God reveals himself the ability to hide like this only God has the ability to hide like some of our greatest leaders were hidden the Baal Shemta before he was revealed before he was forced to reveal himself from heaven for the first 36 years of his life he was completely hidden you see the light of the Baal Shemta for the last hundreds of years Everything that you see today, all the whole Hasidic movement, the 3,600 Chabad houses, they're really Baal Shem Tov houses. So the, the fact that the Baal Shem Tov contained within himself so much light, such intense light, how was he able to hide it? He can't hide such intense light to pretend that he's a simple person. You see what power this Jew had, how much power he had. How could the Baal Shem Tov, how could he hide this light? The ability to be able to hide, totally conceal oneself, is a much greater expression of character. It comes from a much deeper place, much more intense place than the ability, ability to reveal. So the fact that God is able to hide, totally conceal himself, means that God's presence in this world is so much more powerful, so much more intense than. God's revelation in heaven that's why according to Jewish tradition this world is the holiest of all the world God's presence is greater in this material world than in heaven this is the holiest of all the worlds this is the most intense the most powerful of all the worlds this is the world in which we can affect we can change we can really matter and make a difference because this is where the essence of God the essence of God is much more is much more present in this world than the revelation of God in heaven because God's concealment comes from a much deeper place than God's revelation. And this world is a result of God's simpsum. Not only the quantitative simpsumim, the many numerous simpsumim, but more importantly, the qualitative simpsumim, the intensity of the simpsumim, the total hiding and the total concealment. That until God is able to create the klipa and the other side and the impurity, the impurity, the impure are those who totally deny God. Totally deny God. Egotism, arrogance, atheism—the denial of God. When a person worships his own mind, when a person worships himself, this the self-made man who denies God's existence. When God is not even part of the equation, all there is is me, myself, and I. Idolatry—this God despises. But nevertheless, God creates and sustains. While he's worshipping idols, while he's in the total state of atheism and denial, God is sustaining and creating this, that whole world. Why? If God hates it, why? And, but God is like holding his nose, turning his back and throwing that person life and sustenance. Why is God giving life to sustenance? If God hates because it's necessary. When a person has freedom of choice and yet a person chooses to do good when it's a difficult choice and it costs you, there's a price to that choice. You have to sacrifice. You have to give up something. And then you've earned that reward. And that's the greatest gift that God can give us. If God gives us something free on a silver platter Let's say if doing good was simple and easy. It was easy. We we had no temptations. We had no (laughs) distractions. The world around us was holy and genuine and godly and good. Sounds like the world we live in, right? And um, then it would be like on a silver platter. But you know when you get something free, as the Zohar says, it's like a slap in the face. You feel you you haven't earned it. You don't deserve it. If something is given to you free, it's cheap. You feel cheapened by it. In heaven, the soul, everything is given to the soul on a silver platter. It's a free gift. The soul hasn't earned it. That's why the soul comes into this world, a very dark world. Many temptations and tests. And you have freedom of choice. And people get away with murder. And yet you choose, not because you. Don't have a choice. You have a choice. And you could choose the opposite. And yet you choose to do the right thing. Not because you're a simpleton and you're innocent and therefore you don't know any better. No, you could do. You could have easily chosen the opposite. But you chose to do the right thing. It's your choice. Then it's a reward that you have earned. And that gives a person the deepest satisfaction. You feel that you own that reward. You earned that reward. You deserve that reward. Because you have chosen. It cost you. You paid a price for it. You had to sacrifice. It wasn't easy. There was a genuine effort involved. You've earned it at the end of the day. That's the greatest gift that God can give a person, is the, the feeling of, I've earned that reward. So that's the one reason why God holds his nose, so to speak, turns his back and throws and gives life force and sustenance to the klipa, to the Akhra, to the atheists and to the idolaters and to the pagans and those who totally deny God's existence, who are totally cut God out of the picture, that's one reason. But the other reason he gives is to punish the wicked. What does it mean to punish the wicked? Why does God have to create a world of evil so there should be wicked people to punish? If he wouldn't have created the world, if he hates evil so much, then God shouldn't have created evil in the first place Then there wouldn't be anyone to punish. Why is that a reason to create, to hide himself so well, to conceal himself so well And to turn his back and to throw a little life force, a little life sustenance to to wickedness and to evil in order to punish the wicked? Where's the logic? And the answer is, one of the explanations is that everything that exists in this world really is rooted in godliness. We see that one of the most powerful forces in life is the desire to win, competition, competition. a person wants to win. When there's this heavy competition and yet you win. The ability to win, the desire to win. It's, it's one of the deepest pleasures that a person has. When there's a race and the better team wins. That's why everything in life is competition. Two teams. One team is going to lose and one team is going to win. And then the winning <coughs> means something. When the winning means something, when you defeat the enemy, when you win over the enemy, when there's a battle, and there's a conflict, and there's competition, and you win, and the enemy loses. If there's no loser, then the winning doesn't mean anything. It's when you win over the competition, and you defeated the competition, and you beat the competition, and you won the war, you won the battle, that gives you the deepest pleasure. And people have that competitive streak. They have that desire to win, to be on top, to be the number one, to... Because it comes from a very deep root within the soul. (coughs) A person gives a person tremendous pleasure. Where does this come from? Everything that exists in this world comes from the divine. So too, when goodness defeats evil, when the wicked, instead of the wicked prospering, when the wicked are punished and get their comeuppance and get what they deserve and are punished, when evil and lies is defeated and receives their just rewards, then goodness and goodness triumphs. That's the deepest pleasure. When you see falsehood getting their, their comeuppance, when you see lies and deceit, yes, people get away with murder, up until a point. But then there comes a point when the wicked are punished. When justice is done, that touches a very deep place. When evil is defeated, and goodness and truth wins, that touches a very deep place. And that's the purpose. And that's why God created the world. And that's why God created the world, a world where He's so concealed and so hidden, that He holds His nose, so to speak, and throws some life sustenance to evil, because evil serves a purpose. Evil has to be defeated. And then when goodness triumphs, There's meaning to that triumph. the righteous people earned their reward, and evil has been defeated. We've won. We can raise the flag, we won the war. If there's no competition, if the outcome is very clear, then then there's no fun. The whole thrill of a game is when when it's so close and we don't know who's going to win and it can go either way and everything is on the line and... And then when the good team wins and the right team wins and the other one is defeated, that's so sweet. That's so meaningful and memorable. So God wanted to defeat evil. And that good goodness should win in Trayam. But the question remains why does he have to mention that first? He says first he says to punish the wicked, and then he says to reward the righteous. First he should have said to reward the righteous, and then to punish the wicked. Like it says in the beginning of chapter five, in ethics of our fathers, God could have created the world with one utterance. Why did he create the world with ten utterances? And again, there he says, to punish the wicked, who destroy a world that was created with ten utterances, and to give reward to the righteous, who sustain a world that was created with ten utterances. There you have the same question. Why does he start with a negative? And the explanation there is, there in ethics of our fathers he uses he doesn't say here he says lahanish, to punish. There he says lihipara. Lihipara Means to punish, but lipara also means to pay back. Retribution. Retribution but it also means lipara to pay back. <clears throat> like paying back a loan. Because the truth is that there is an energy. There is an energy within the klipa, within the wicked, a very powerful energy. As we find, the more alienated, the more distant something is from God, the coarser it is, the greater the energy. The greater the attraction. When something is very attractive, you've got to start suspecting, <laughs> it's not kosher, because something is kosher doesn't have such a powerful attraction. When something is a very powerful attraction, the less kosher it is, the more powerful the attraction. The drunker it is, the more drunk food it is, the tastier it is. That's just the way it is. And the analogy is, the Kabbalah uses the analogy, if you take a wall, and when the wall falls down, the highest stone in the wall will fall the farthest away from its source. So to everything in this world, its source is God and godliness. There is no other source. Nothing else exists but God. So everything has a godly energy. But the farther it is, the further it falls, Fell away from its source means it comes from a higher source, very powerful source. So the energy within the Russia, that bacchanalian energy, that wild, chaotic energy, that energy is a good energy. God wants that energy. So he doesn't want to destroy the Russia. It's not about destroying the Russia. As we say, the, the Russia should do Teshuvah. We don't want it to destroy the Russia. We want the Russia to do Teshuvah. We want the wicked person to repent and to acknowledge God. We want the Rasha to pay back all that energy, all that negative energy that he expended in negativity, in evil. He should take that energy itself and reconnect it back to the source. Bring it back home. Bring those sparks, Bring those sparks back home. Because the purpose is to use that energy. God wants that intense energy, that powerful energy. But take all that energy that's been spilled, and that's been wasted on materialism, those raw, uninhibited passions, where a person just let loose and let go without any inhibitions, without any restraints, without any discipline. Hashem wants to take that energy and bring it back home where it belongs that you're studying of Torah, you're doing of mitzvot, and your relationship to God with be with the same passion, the same passion that that person is running to Las Vegas, you take that passion and run to show. <laughs> the purpose is not just to destroy the Russia, to destroy the wicked and everyone will become like like robots and, and docile and and sweet and nice. And Hashem wants take that turbulence, take that darkness and that turbulence, that powerful, raw, but can energy. Take it, and bring it home uh, sublimate them and, tr- and uh, harness them to Godness. that's why he says to pay back the rush has to pay back not to destroy the Russia, but to, the rush has to pay back for all the good times that he had and all the negative experiences that he had he has to take all that energy and bring it back home that's why in Ethics of Our Father he starts out with the rush. that's the purpose of creation purpose of creation is that everything should come back home to God. Everything should be reconnected with God. The good, the bad, the ugly, everything. Kabbalah and the Psychology of the Soul. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky.